Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Welcome back to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. We are going to follow up our conversation from last time where we discussed the difference between politics and government to looking at the role information plays in how we talk about politics and government. This is going to be focused mostly on the realm of politics since it's acknowledging that politics make pretty much dominates our conversations related to government. So I'm going to look at mostly today politics and information. That's kind of what we're going to be looking at is how does information influence our conversations about politics? How can we be better consumers about inf- uh, with information and what kind of information should we be even looking to consume? So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, as I said in the last podcast, if you want more information on this, you can check out the show notes. I'll post links to other articles and research that I cite in this discussion and you can read it in more detail there. Okay, let's dive into the discussion for today. We're going to talk about politics and information. So last time we defined politics in the previous episode as being essentially a series of negotiated relationships uh, within a government structure. And those relationships usually are seeking to uh, influence, define, exercise authority in some manner. And one of the critical ingredients to understanding these relationships, to talking about them, to even articulating whether or not one of these relationships is imbalanced or out of whack, is information. And that's a big reason why, especially in a democratic system like the one we have here in America, is that you need an independent and diverse media. That's why it's so crucial to the health of a democratic system to have uh, an independent and diverse media, is because of the centrality of information to understanding relationships. Uh, That's, I mean, there's a lot of other reasons why you need uh, diverse and independent media as well, but this is a big one, is high quality, accurate information is essential if we're going to successfully navigate all these overlapping and interlocking networks of relationship that proliferate in our federal system. Now, that's helpful to understand at the abstract general level. I think anyone would agree that, yes, in a representative system where citizens are called upon to exercise a degree of of interaction with government in selecting leaders and passing laws, that information is very critical to those citizens and that uh, good information should be prized and sought after and regularly consumed. I, I don't think you'd find much debate over that point, maybe some quibbles over different details of it. But as we dig down, though, to look at the actual information ecosystem in American society and culture today, we find that we have this thing called the internet. And the internet has broken down a lot of barriers, that can be a good thing, and filters through which information used to be passed. Now, we're all members of the media. So this independent and diverse media that I said was important to the health of the democratic system, to a large degree, the internet has made it possible that we're all members of that now. Uh, So we need to discuss how we, as citizens, engage with that information, 
how we understand how that information informs our politics, our personal view of politics. But even for those of us like myself who actually produce media in this very wide open media landscape, we need to actually think about what our responsibilities are to our fellow citizens in terms of the type of information we produce, the manner in which we disseminate it, and you know the, the code of ethics that govern our creation and dissemination of said information. So to kind of contextualize this, one of the big stories of the 2016 presidential election was the role of, its, of misinformation and the open question on, as to whether or not that misinformation affected the outcome of the presidential election. So let's talk about how to find good information and how to use it in political discussions. And along the way, I'll kind of cite a few key resources. One of the things you should probably start with as we think about information broadly is we should also start to think about it a little more categorically. And for this, I've generally found that the concept of an information cycle has been hugely helpful to kind of prioritize the information I consume, but also to just get me some perspective and to even, you might say, gut check a lot of the information that comes at me really fast over the course of a 24-hour news cycle. So when I say information cycle, I do not mean the news cycle. The news cycle, as it currently is made up, is a 24-hour constant churning of information, and it's far too short to actually know much of anything. The information cycle, on the other hand, is essentially a kind of media studies uh, model uh, to help us kind of categorize different types of information based on not just the medium in which they're presented, but also how that medium and the time it takes to produce it influences the type of information that shows up in it. So let me give you an example. Generally speaking, the information cycle is made up of five elements. The first part of the cycle, you might say, you know, is there like a word for a subset of a cycle? I, I don't know. So the first part of the cycle, the first step in the cycle, the first rung on the ladder, you might say, of information is TV, internet, social media. These are rapid response, rapid processing uh, information portals. The second component of the information cycle are newspapers, the general, you know, print newspapers, you might say, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, those types of things. Followed by the third element of the information cycle, those are magazines. So these are, think, in the political realm, think like uh, the Atlantic, the Weekly Standard, the New Republic, the National Review, those types of things. They usually come out maybe once a week or twice a month or something like that, maybe even just monthly. And then you get into journals, and these come out even less regularly than magazines. They might come out every other month. They might even come out just a few times a year. Uh, one of the favorite journals I subscribe to is, uh, is Foreign Affairs, but these also include academic journals uh, in different academic disciplines. And then finally, the last element of the information cycle is where we look at books, major published pieces. So books, government reports, so you might have heard about the Mueller report that came out not too long ago, and uh, reference materials, so encyclopedias. Essentially, the principle that governs the information cycle is this general thought that the more complex and advanced works, so books, government reports, reference materials, they actually provide 
the most verified data. They give you the greatest perspective, the greatest depth, and the simpler works such as TV, internet, social media, even newspapers generally provide the advantage of immediacy and basic facts. So this is not to say that any one element of the information cycle is better than the others or more important than the others. What the information cycle suggests is that each of these categories or of information sources carries with it a certain relationship to information, a certain relationship to the truth, a certain relationship to facts, and that that relationship needs to be understood if we're going to be able to responsibly consume and disseminate information. So a great example of this, actually, I just referenced the Mueller report. And so let's talk about that. So the Mueller report is this 400 page report that uh, that came out just this last year or within the last few months. So in 2019, that was the Justice Department's record of their special investigation to the question of whether or not the Trump campaign in 2016 colluded with Russian intelligence to affect the outcome of the presidential election in 2016. Okay, so that was the central question. Obviously, there were a lot of interrelated questions. There were a lot of overlapping investigations. We don't have to get into all those details right now. But the the Mueller report was that book government report category of information. How long did it take them to produce that? It took about two years. Prior to that, actually, pretty much from day one after the election concluded in November of 2016, stories began circulating on television, on the internet, in social media, raising the question and the concern about Russian um, use of misinformation, Russian uh, interference in the election, until eventually and pretty rapidly uh, within just a matter of days or weeks, certainly before President Trump even took the oath of office, it was pretty set that there was a narrative of collusion had happened. Now notice the shift of uh, the shift in the question or the shift in how information was being handled. In the initial days and weeks following the election of President Trump, TV, internet sources, social media, this kind of 24-hour news cycle element of the information cycle was basically promoting, ginning up a story or a narrative uh, based around some loose facts or some things that were known or thought to be known. Uh, It was known that Russian Uh, elements and hackers had interfered in the election. No one was really disputing that. Uh, It was known that Trump had pulled off an upset victory. No one was going to dispute that. And so what started to happen was that as these stories kind and these facts emerged, newspapers and magazines in the days and weeks following this election took these kind of maybe related or correlated facts of the election and started trying to put them together into some kind of narrative to help people understand what had just happened. Because obviously for a lot of people, there was great surprise in the outcome of the election. Now I said correlating facts because as we well know for anyone who's 
taking a statistics course, correlation doesn't equal causation. Just because you have two facts existing at the same time does not mean they necessarily have a direct relationship. In fact, that's a big part of this Mueller investigation was, were these two facts that occurred at the same time, Trump winning the presidency and Russian interference in the election, were those connected in any way and what was the nature of that connection? But in the time that investigation was going on and that report was being developed, these other levels of the of the information cycle started kicking in to verify information, validate information, put other narratives together, connect the information in other ways to try to give, uh, produce new narratives, or maybe just to question narratives that had been established initially. And that's how you kind of, tur- this whole thing kind of became something of a media circus. Where we're going to need the help of academic journals, books, and government reports to sort all this out is they'll be, they act down the line as time goes on as the filters through which a lot of the facts and narratives are critically analyzed uh, to more or less verify just how right or wrong they were. So academic journals will look at uh, things like cybersecurity to study uh, election systems and their weaknesses. Uh, they might look at the history of foreign interference in American elections. I mean, the 2016 election wasn't the first time a country, <laughs> wasn't the first time Russia had tried to interfere in an American election. So even just trying to establish measures of how how effective interferences. Those are all going to be the work of academic journals. And a lot of that work will interact with the earlier reportage in newspapers and magazines. And maybe from all that interaction, you'll get some more books and government reports. And that's kind of how the uh, information cycle works. It's kind of each level interacting with the other level to uh, connect dots, verify data, uh, to if a data is not validated to kind of demonstrate that so it gets out of the narrative and try to reshape the narrative to make sure it fits the data that is available and known and things like that. That is more or less the role and purpose of the information cycle. And there's a few things you can take away from knowing about the information cycle and knowing about these categories when it comes to thinking and talking about politics. So let's talk about how you can apply this idea of the information cycle to assess your own knowledge and understanding of a political subject. There's a few, I think there's a few helpful guideposts we can take away from uh, this brief discussion. Uh, First is the principle of going back to the source. Uh, This is really, really important. We have to understand that when you get the, within the first few hours or even the first few days of an event or a statement by a political leader, TV, internet, social media, newspapers, those kind of like um, those immediate, those first responders in the information cycle are going to make very quick assessments based on essentially initial reaction. Uh, that's not illegitimate. It's not invalid. But we have to remember that these are immediate initial reactions. They are not necessarily reflected actions. As a result, they, the information and input from a political event gets passed through pre-existing lenses and filters that uh, 
journalists or other observers of an event or speech might have. Uh, this is particularly true in social media, especially social media in the days of President Trump. I mean, especially when you have a president who is so profuse in their personal use of social media, Twitter in President Trump's case, uh, it is really, really easy to uh, get caught into this react just reaction to something he might tweet or say and forget that that reaction is information that's passing through a pre-existing lens and we're just getting people's first response to it. Uh, and this is actually, I think, one of the biggest areas of friction between the president and the press is that the press is very focused on facts as well they should be. But Trump's stream of consciousness rhetoric that comes through the Twitter filter doesn't really lend itself to easy interpretation. Uh, I mean, there's misspellings, not always the best grammar, you know, you, you know, just why is he using all caps, that kind of stuff. I mean, that that is very open to interpretation. And so if you think about it, he, and by the way, if you if you think that things like poorly worded tweets and with incomplete spelling or grammar and all caps, if you think those are not easy to interpret, and, or if you think that Trump is just uniquely guilty of this, I'm going to challenge you to go back and check your text messages and see if you can't find one conversation where a misunderstanding occurred because the sender meant one thing and you read another because you were passing that text through a pre-existing lens or filter. What I'm trying to say here is that for every freak out over what Trump said, uh, if I go back and actually read all of Trump's comments, whether they're a series of tweets or whether they're a speech or an interview, um, for all the freak out that usually happens over a particular phrase, I usually find that when I go back to the initial quote, see the whole thing in context, what I'm hearing a freak out over is usually on just a vague element of the quote or the element of the quote that is most open to interpretation, not necessarily the elements of the quote that are not vague, you know, the ones that are pretty clear. I don't say this as a defense of President Trump and his use of Twitter. Uh, I do not have Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. And a lot of it is because I don't appreciate how people use it, in, including the president. So I'm not meaning this as a defense of President Trump. I'm merely using this as an example to demonstrate that one of the first things we can do to kind of critically analyze our information and our consumption of it is we can apply the concept of the information cycle and from that understand that it is valuable to go back and check sources, go back and check uh, the information where people are claiming to get their information. Uh, because what we often find is that there uh, are misunderstandings or misinterpretations because initial reactions are being produced not necessarily close analysis. And this leads us to the second principle is that if you're going to get to close analysis on a particular subject in the political realm, is it's helpful to listen to both sides. Now, this doesn't mean that you must always listen to or read one conservative source, one liberal source, or something like that. It's not, I'm not trying to be that legalistic about it. However, you should want to develop a posture of hearing points on both sides of an issue. So for me, I like to watch publications across the political spectrum. And for those of you who are subscribers to the Weekly Brief, my newsletter, uh, you'll see this show up there. I mean, on any given story, I usually try to include 
uh, conservative and liberal sources. Uh, I usually try to, if if possible, I'll include conserv- conservative, liberal, and independent sources. And I usually try to find those that not just disagree at the ideological level, but even agree despite ideological differences. Uh, so I tried to, uh, and one of the ways I tried to find that information is I actually read links that my friends will share on social media that disagree with my initial assumptions. So a lot of this um, part of listening to both sides means being familiar with where we land on particular issues, being familiar with our personal uh, political preferences and assumptions, and then purposefully engaging information that would disagree with it. I I try to do this as often as possible. Uh, I try to put myself in a position where I can be proven wrong because that's how I'm gonna refine my thinking. It's also gonna be how I deepen my understanding. And that's a big part of how I engage the first two pieces of the information cycle, TV, internet, social media, newspapers. I really try to make that the point at which I'm challenging my assumptions. I wanna challenge my assumptions early and often so that when I get to the more complex works, the journals and the books, I'll have a more developed concept of the issue I'm engaging with and the, and the topics I, that are under discussion. A third concept we can take away from the information cycle is this idea of letting a story breathe. It takes time to know all the particulars of a subject. Even after a year, or in the case of the Mueller report, even after a couple of years of investigations, I mean detailed, deep investigations involving dozens, if not hundreds of people, dynamic developments on the ground continued, can continue to add facts. Those facts can take on a life of their own as many of these side investigations occurred in the in the Mueller investigation. They developed their own mini cycles within the larger information cycle. Giving a story time to develop also helps us, uh, I think, as individuals develop a, pers- uh, develop a certain perspective and self-control in relationship to political events and uh, even how people respond to them. This is actually a big part of why I don't react to major events on social media very quickly. Uh, I usually wait a few days before I say anything, if I even say anything. Uh, The benefit here I've found is that the language of different information sources usually starts to influence my language in how I discuss something. So if I'm consuming information across the spectrum of information from books to social media, that's going to give me a deeper well of resources to draw on when I'm discussing a political topic. If I'm just responding and discussing a political topic in terms of whatever comes across my social media feed or that I read on the internet, I'm going to have a very narrow vocabulary and a narrow understanding of the subject, which is going to make it much more difficult for me to have a meaningful or helpful conversation with people, particularly people who disagree with me. And I think this is particularly important in an age when hyperbole and something that I like to call the rhetoric of certainty dominates the internet. We live at a time where on the internet in particular, so on that first step or that first portion of the information cycle, it is characterized by very exclusivist rhetoric, very um, all or nothing rhetoric. It's what I call the rhetoric of certainty. And if that's all we're consuming, it's going to become very easy for us to start using that language. And problem is that really starts to move us in a direction where we can't really have conversations with people who disagree with us because we've just caricaturized those individuals or that position to such an extent 
that we can't really see what's actually there. Okay, so that's my brief introduction of the information cycle. Hopefully that was uh, somewhat clear. It's still a topic that I'm kind of in the early stages of exploring, but suffice to say the information cycle and kind of the general principles I've drawn from learning about it has really helped me kind of think through how I consume information. Uh, the basic takeaway here being that I try to make sure that in any given day, I'm consuming hopefully equal amounts of uh, information from different elements or different places of the information cycle. And this doesn't all have to be on the same topic. It's more like, okay, if I'm spending time reading internet news, am I also spending time reading a longer essay from a magazine? Am I also spending time reading a book? Just so that I can get familiar and be aware of how the author's and thinkers in these different realms are interacting with information and am I letting that influence how I how I see and interact and think about the information I come in contact with so how can we apply this in our own conversations how can you what can you take away from this and how can you use this in your daily life one of the conversation starters I'd like to suggest here is just asking the question what does your information cycle look like another way are you generally consuming a balanced diet of information or is it kind of skewed towards one arena or the other because like i said each of these components of the information cycle is important and useful so if all you ever do is read books my concern for you is that you'll be a little disconnected from what's going on in the day-to-day -day. i'm not sure that's a good response but likewise if all you're doing is consuming television, the internet, and social media information, I'm going to be very concerned that you're not getting the whole picture. I don't care how many Netflix documentaries you're watching. So uh, that's going to be my main concern there. The question becomes, is your information cycle imbalanced in any area, not just one area or the other? So of the five information categories defined earlier, uh, which ones would you say predominate your information consumption? And why do you think that is? Um, if you think it's just a function of time, uh, it might be worth thinking about what would look like to reallocate that time or reorient the time. Or maybe it's just a function of what's immediately available for you. So maybe we need to think about, okay, how can we make other things, other sources of information available? So the information cycle model is a fairly new thing. Uh, so I'm not going to suggest that there's some ideal quantity for each category you know it's like spend 10 minutes on the internet 10 minutes reading a book 10 minutes i'm not going to suggest that but i think you can apply uh some basic and actually a very aristotelian principle of too much of a good thing is a bad thing i think you can apply that here and so generally speaking is the information diet unbalanced so that'd be the main question to take away from this is uh, what is my information diet you know, what are its components? Is any element out of whack? And how do I bring it back into balance? So it kind of help you process this a, a little more. In the show notes, I'll post a few uh, links to different things. The University of Illinois has a great infographic and explainer article on the information cycle. So if you kind of want a visualization of it and how it how it kind of shapes information, I'll put that there for you to take a look at. And I'll also post a few of my writings from Tim Talks Politics. I wrote an essay where I kind of outline and define my idea of the rhetoric of certainty early last year. So I'll put that up. 
And I'll also post a article I wrote and post on LinkedIn where I kind of look at the problems with overemphasizing one area of the information cycle. And then I actually asked the question in that post, you know, what do we need to do to get a balanced information diet? And out of that post, I actually develop and outline this idea for the weekly brief, my newsletter. So I can, uh, I'll post a link to that newsletter as well. That is kind of the main piece or one of the main pieces uh, of Tim Talks Politics. It is the newsletter is not just a newsletter or a recap of the weekly news. Uh, the weekly brief is actually an attempt to help people rebalance their information diet a little bit uh, and to kind of engage with other elements of the information cycle. The last word today comes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon the notable British theologian and writer of the 19th century. In 1859, he said, a lie will go round the world while truth is pulling its boots on. Yes, you've probably heard that quote ascribed to Mark Twain, but what did I say? Go back to the sources, check your facts. You'll find that Mark Twain did not say that. So ironic, I know, but I think both the quote and it's uh, it's kind of convoluted journey of attribution both point to the importance of the information cycle and leveraging it to basically to check our facts, to be familiar with the information that we're consuming, not just because there's plenty of misinformation out there, but also because of the recognition of what Spurgeon picks up on here, and that is that misinformation can actually travel faster. Uh, And I would say that he's even more right now in a 24-hour news cycle, internet information age type place. That's it for me for today. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hope you find it useful. And I'll see you next time on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast.